Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 8, Part 4 The finest constitution and the finest man remain for us to discuss, namely, tyranny and a tyrannical man. They certainly do. Come then. How does tyranny come into being? It's fairly clear that it evolves from democracy. It is. And doesn't it evolve from democracy in much the same way that democracy does from oligarchy? What way is that? The good that oligarchy puts before itself, and because of which it is established, is wealth, isn't it? Yes. And its insatiable desire for wealth and its neglect of other things for the sake of money-making is what destroyed it, isn't it? That's true. And isn't democracy's insatiable desire for what it defines as the good also what destroys it? What do you think it defines as the good? Freedom. Surely you'd hear a democratic city say that this is the finest thing it has, so that as a result it is the only city worth living in for someone who is by nature free. Yes, you often hear that. Then, as I was about to say, doesn't the insatiable desire for freedom and the neglect of other things change this constitution and put it in need of a dictatorship. In what way? I suppose that, when a democratic city, a thirst for freedom, happens to get bad cupbearers for its leaders, so that it gets drunk by drinking more than it should of the unmixed wine of freedom, then, unless the rulers are very pliable and provide plenty of that freedom, they are punished by the city, and accused of being accursed oligarchs. Yes, that is what it does. It insults those who obey the rulers as willing slaves, and good-for-nothings, and praises and honors, both in public and in private, rulers who behave like subjects, and subjects who behave like rulers. And isn't it inevitable that freedom should go to all lengths in such a city? Of course. It makes its way into private households, and in the end, breeds anarchy even among the animals. What do you mean? I mean that a father accustoms himself to behave like a child, and fear his sons, while the son behaves like a father, feeling neither shame nor fear in front of his parents, in order to be free. A resident alien or a foreign visitor is made equal to a citizen, and he is their equal. Yes, that is what happens. It does and so do other little things of the same sort. A teacher in such a community is afraid of his students and flatters them, while the students despise their teachers or tutors. And, in general, the young imitate their elders and compete with them in word and deed, while the old stoop to the level of the young and are full of play and pleasantry, imitating the young for fear of appearing disagreeable and authoritarian. Absolutely. The utmost freedom for the majority is reached in such a city when bought slaves, both male and female, are no less free than those who bought them. And I almost forgot to mention the extent of the legal equality of men and women, of the freedom in the relations between them. What about the animals? Are we, with Aeschylus, going to say, quote, whatever it was that came to our lips just now about them? Certainly. I put it this way. No one who hasn't experienced it would believe how much freer domestic animals are in a democratic city than anywhere else. As the proverb says, dogs become like their mistresses. 
Horses and donkeys are accustomed to roam freely and proudly along the streets, bumping into anyone who doesn't get out of their way, and all the rest are equally full of freedom. You're telling me what I already know. I've often experienced that sort of thing while traveling in the country. To sum up, do you notice how all these things together make the citizen's soul so sensitive that if anyone even puts upon himself the least degree of slavery, they become angry and cannot endure it. And in the end, as you know, they take no notice of the laws, whether written or unwritten, in order to avoid having any master at all. I certainly do. This, then, is the fine and impetuous origin from which tyranny seems to me to evolve. It is certainly impetuous, but what comes next? The same disease that developed in oligarchy and destroyed it also develops here, but it is more widespread and virulent because of the general permissiveness, and it eventually enslaves democracy. In fact, Excessive action in one direction usually sets up a reaction in the opposite direction. This happens in seasons, in plants, in bodies, and, last but not least, in constitutions. That's to be expected. Extreme freedom can't be expected to lead to anything but a change to extreme slavery, whether for a private individual or for a city. No, it can't then I don't suppose that tyranny evolves from any constitution other than democracy, the most severe and cruel slavery from the utmost freedom. Yes, that's reasonable. But I don't think that was your question. You asked what was the disease that developed in oligarchy and also in democracy, enslaving it. That's true. And what I had in mind as an answer was that class of idle and extravagant men whose bravest members are leaders and the more cowardly ones followers. We compared them to stinged and stingless drones, respectively. That's right. Now, these two groups cause problems in any constitution, just as phlegm and bile do in the body. And it's against them that the good doctor and lawgiver of a city must take advanced precautions. First, to prevent their presence. And, second, to cut them out of the hive as quickly as possible, cells and all, if they should happen to be present. Yes, by God, he must cut them out altogether. Then let's take up the question in the following way so that we can see what we want more clearly. In what way? Let's divide a democratic city into three parts in theory, this being the way that it is, in fact, divided. One part is this class of idlers that grows here no less than in an oligarchy because of the general permissiveness. So it does. But it is far fiercer in democracy than in the other. How so? In an oligarchy, it is fierce because it's disdained, but since it is prevented from having a share in ruling, it doesn't get any exercise and doesn't become vigorous. In a democracy, however, with a few exceptions, this class is the dominant one. Its fiercest members do all the talking and acting, while the rest settle near the speaker's platform and buzz and refuse to tolerate the opposition of another speaker, so that, under a democratic constitution, with the few exceptions I referred to before, this class manages everything. That's right. Then there's a second class that always distinguishes itself from the majority of people. Which is that? When everybody is trying to make money, those who are naturally most organized generally become the wealthiest. Probably so. 
then they would provide the most honey for the drones and the honey that is most easily extractable by them. Yes, for how could anyone extract it from those who have very little? Then I suppose that these rich people are called drone fodder. Something like that. The people, those who work with their own hands, are the third class. They take no part in politics and have few possessions, but when they are assembled, they are the largest and most powerful class in a democracy. They are. But they aren't willing to assemble often unless they get a share of the honey. And they always do get a share, though the leaders, in taking the wealth of the rich and distributing it to the people, keep the greater part for themselves. Yes, that is the way the people get their share. And I suppose that those whose wealth is taken away are compelled to defend themselves by speaking before the people and doing whatever else they can, of course. And they're accused by the drones of plotting against the people and of being oligarchs, even if they have no desire for revolution at all. That's right. So in the end, when they see the people trying to harm them, they truly do become oligarchs and embrace oligarchy's evils, whether they want to or not. But neither group does these things willingly. Rather, the people act as they do because they are ignorant and are deceived by the drones. And the rich act as they do because they are driven to it by the stinging of those same drones. Absolutely. And then there are impeachments, judgments, and trials on both sides. That's right. Now, aren't the people always in the habit of setting up one man as their special champion, nurturing him and making him great? They are. And it's clear that, when a tyrant arises, this special leadership is the sole root from which he sprouts. It is. What is the beginning of the transformation from leader of the people to tyrant? Isn't it clear that it happens when the leader begins to behave like the man in the story told about the temple of the Lycaean Zeus in Arcadia? What story is that? That anyone who tastes the one piece of human innards that's chopped up with those of the other sacrificial victims must inevitably become a wolf. Haven't you heard that story? I have. Then doesn't the same happen with a leader of the people who dominates a docile mob and doesn't restrain himself from spilling kindred blood? He brings someone to trial on false charges and murders him, as tyrants so often do. And, by thus blotting out a human life, his impious tongue and lips taste kindred citizen blood. He banishes some, kills others, and drops hints to the people about the cancellation of debts and the redistribution of land. And because of these things, isn't a man like that inevitably fated either to be killed by his enemies or to be transformed from a man into a wolf by becoming a tyrant? It's completely inevitable. He's the one who stirs up civil wars against the rich. He is. And if he's exiled but manages, despite his enemies, to return, doesn't he come back as a full-fledged tyrant? Clearly. And if these enemies are unable to expel him, or to put him to death by accusing him before the city, they plot secretly to kill him. That's usually what happens, at least. And all who've reached this stage soon discover the famous request of the tyrant, namely, that the people give him a bodyguard to keep their defender safe for them. That's right. And the people give it to him, I suppose, because they are afraid for his safety, but aren't worried at all about their own. That's right. And when a wealthy man sees this and is charged with being an enemy of the people because of his wealth, then, as the oracle de Croesus put it, he, quote, flees to the banks of the many pebbled Hermas, neither staying put nor being ashamed of his cowardice. 
he wouldn't get a second chance of being ashamed. That's true, for if he was caught, he'd be executed. He most certainly would. But, as for the leader, he doesn't lie on the ground, quote, mighty in his might. But having brought down many others, he stands in the city's chariot, a complete tyrant rather than a leader. What else? Then let's describe the happiness of this man, and of the city in which a mortal like him comes to be. Certainly, let's do so. During the first days of his reign, and for some time after, won't he smile in welcome at anyone he meets, saying that he's no tyrant, making all sorts of promises, both in public and in private, freeing the people from debt, redistributing the land to them and to his followers, and pretending to be gracious and gentle to all. He'd have to. But I suppose that, when he has dealt with his exiled enemies by making peace with some and destroying others, so that all is quiet on that front, the first thing he does is to stir up a war, so that the people will continue to feel the need of a leader. Probably so. But also so that they'll become poor through having to pay war taxes, for that way they'll have to concern themselves with their daily needs and be less likely to plot against him clearly. Besides, if he suspects some people of having thoughts of freedom and of not favoring his rule, can't he find a pretext for putting them at the mercy of the enemy in order to destroy them? And for all these reasons, isn't it necessary for a tyrant to be always stirring up war? It is. And because of this, isn't he all the more readily hated by the citizens? Of course. Moreover, don't the bravest of those who help to establish his tyranny, and who hold positions of power within it, speak freely to each other and to him, criticizing what's happening? They probably do. Then the tyrant will have to do away with all of them if he intends to rule, until he's left with neither friend nor enemy of any worth. Clearly. He must, therefore, keep a sharp lookout for anyone who is brave, large-minded, knowledgeable, or rich and so happy is he that he must be the enemy of them all, whether he wants to be or not, and plot against them until he has purged them from the city. That's a fine sort of purge. Yes, for it's the opposite of the one that doctors perform on the body. They draw off the worst and leave the best, but he does just the opposite. Yet, I expect he'll have to do this if he's really going to rule. It's a blessedly happy necessity he's bound by, since it requires him either to live with the inferior majority, even though they hate him, or not to live at all. Yes, that's exactly his condition. And won't he need a larger and more loyal bodyguard, the more his actions make the citizens hate him? Of course. And who will these trustworthy people be, and where will he get them from? They'll come swarming of their own accord if he pays them. Drones by the dog! All manner of foreign drones! That's what I think you're talking about. You're right. But what about in the city itself? Wouldn't he be willing... Willing to what? To deprive citizens of their slaves by freeing them and enlisting them in his bodyguard? He certainly would, since they'd be likely to prove most loyal to him. What a blessedly happy sort of fellow you make the tyrant out to be, if these are the sort of people he employs as friends and loyal followers after he's done away with the earlier ones. Nonetheless, they're the sort he employs. And these companions and new citizens admire and associate with him, while the decent people hate and avoid him. Of course. It isn't for nothing, then, that tragedy in general has the reputation of being wise, and that Euripides is thought to be outstandingly so. 
Why is that? Because, among other shrewd things he said, that, quote, tyrants are wise who associate with the wise. And by the wise, he clearly means the sort of people that we've seen to be the tyrant's associates. Yes, and he and the other poets eulogize tyranny as godlike, and say lots of other such things about it. Then, surely, since the tragic poets are wise, they'll forgive us, and those whose constitutions resemble ours, if we don't admit them into our city, since they praise tyranny. I suppose that the more sophisticated among them will. And so I suppose that they go around to other cities, draw crowds, hire people with fine, big, persuasive voices, and lead their constitutions to tyranny and democracy. They do indeed. And besides this, they receive wages and honors, especially, as one might expect, from the tyrants and, in second place, from the democracies. But the higher they go on the ascending scale of constitutions, the more their honor falls off, as if unable to keep up with them for lack of breath. Absolutely. But we digress. So let's return to that fine, numerous, diverse, and ever-changing bodyguard of the tyrant and explain how he'll pay for it. Clearly, if there are sacred treasuries in the city, he'll use them for as long as they last, as well as the property of the people he has destroyed, thus requiring smaller taxes from the people. What about when these give out? Clearly, both he and his fellow revelers, his companions, male or female, will have to feed off his father's estate. I understand. You mean that the people who fathered the tyrant will have to feed him and his companions? They'll be forced to do so. And what would you have to say about this? What if the people get angry and say, first, that it isn't just for a grown-up son to be fed by his father, but, on the contrary, for the father to be fed by his son? Second, that they didn't father him and establish him in power so that when he'd become strong, they'd be enslaved to their own slave and have to feed both him and his slaves, along with other assorted rabble. But because they hoped that, with him as their leader, they'd be free from the rich and the so-called fine and good people of the city. Third, that they therefore order him and his companions to leave the city, just as a father might drive a son and his troublesome fellow revelers from his house. Then, by God, the people will come to know what kind of creature they have fathered, welcomed, and made strong, and that they are the weaker trying to drive out the stronger. What do you mean? Will the tyrant dare to use violence against his father, or to hit him if he doesn't obey? Yes, once he's taken away his father's weapons. You mean that the tyrant is a parasite, and a harsh nurse of old age, that his rule has become an acknowledged tyranny at last, and that, as the saying goes, by trying to avoid the frying pan of enslavement to free men, the people have fallen into the fire of having slaves as their masters and that in the place of the great but inappropriate freedom they enjoyed under democracy, they have put upon themselves the harshest and most bitter slavery to slaves. That's exactly what I mean. Well then, aren't we justified in saying that we have adequately described how tyranny evolves from democracy, and what it's like when it has come into being? We certainly are, he said. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. 
To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.